Here we go once again, Monday night, time for Ira on Sports. It's the True Oldies channel, I'm Mike Balsamo, and unfortunately, Ira not in studio tonight. We're going to have him on the phone. Good reason for that, though, Ira. You're doing a little bit of traveling. You're slowly working your way back to South Florida. I can't wait for you to be back, but where are you now? I'm Washington, D.C. It's pouring down raining here today, so it's like I feel like I am in South Florida, but I went yesterday uh, to the D.C. Open, which is a tennis tournament before the U.S. Open at the end of August and September, and I got a chance to see Coco Goff have probably one of her best victories ever uh, to be to become the champion of the D.C. Open. She played fantastic. Everyone knows about Coco. She's, she's been playing on the tour for four years. She's 19 years old, and uh, uh, she is going to be an all-time great, and it's just it's just improving, and she played great. And I probably the best seat I've ever had at a tennis match, first row, right where the towel box is, right where the Brad Gilbert, her coach, was. So literally when she came to the – if you ever look at a football game and you're like, I wonder what they're saying in the huddle. I'm in the huddle. That's where I was. If you see a basketball game, you see the team, the heat's all gathered around – Folsters be talking right to me. So that's what it was like. And it was pretty cool to see that. It, you, you watch it on TV, watch Wimbledon and everything, and you're miles away and through it. Just to be there in the action and hear the comments back and forth and her talking to the coach, it was awesome. So I loved it. We'll talk more about uh, tennis coming up a little later. You can see some of the pictures from Ira's fantastic seat. Uh, you can live Ira's life through his eyes at Ira on Sports across social media. Ira, we've got a great guest coming up around 745. It's Brad Baluchian. Tell us about him. Brad Baluchian wrote one of the craziest books you've ever could imagine. And it was rejected by 38 people. And then it became a New York Times bestseller. He tried it. How about this idea? He goes, I'm going to open up a baseball card from 1986, just any pack. So he takes a pack of baseball cards in 1986, opens it up and says, then I'm going to write a book about everyone in there. So he didn't even know who he was going to follow. Like some were stars, some not stars. It's just a baseball card pack. And he literally went and traveled around and met almost everybody in the pack in terms of like finding out where they were, what happened to them, their background. I mean, they're in their 60s right now, all different ages. But I thought this book, and I, I, I you know, we did this interview a little bit ago, and it had an air to it, but it's timeless because it's the back from 1986 in terms of the players and you know players like Carlton Fisk were in there and and Gooden and it was it was it was but it also players that weren't famous that we probably don't even know their names but they had a baseball card which is pretty cool so I thought it was pretty cool I, I love Brad and that book was it's really becoming an iconic baseball book about like the true like going back and look at these baseball players it, it's such a novel concept Ira just like to have that kind of drive, like I'm going to randomly interview a dozen baseball players, and I don't know who they are. I don't. They might have lasted one game in the pros. They might not even made it. They might have been a, a rookie that that never got called up, or this could be a Hall of Famer, and it's going to be a little tougher to track him down. But what a novel concept and idea! And we'll talk to Brad Belukjan at 7:45. So, Ira, what everyone's talking about in the world of sports has to be conference realignment. The NCAA, as we know it, is kind of in a little bit of turmoil, depending on who you are, what conference you're in. It's a good thing we have you here, though, because you might be the foremost expert in the world on what's going on. So get us caught up. And I know there's some history here. Well, you know, I, I said that I'm, I was going to bring on experts. And the more people I brought on, and I'd like to read these articles, like, I know that, I know that, I know that. I, I think I was brought up on it, on this conference realignment because of Penn State. Because Penn State was an independent. So they had no conferences, and they could never get into the national championship games. Like, they play in the Orange Bowl, but the Cotton Bowl would decide the national championship. So I was always mad that Penn State, like the time we won the Rose Bowl, but then Nebraska won the Orange Bowl, so they're the national champions. So I always was mad, and then I was shocked in 1990. Penn State goes to the Big Ten because what Joe Paterno wants to do is Joe Paterno called all the Northeast schools and said, let's we have all the TV markets, Philly, Boston, D.C., uh, New York and Pittsburgh will just be the best conference. And they're like, that's crazy. It's all about basketball. Penn State, your basketball team is terrible. We don't need you. Your basketball team is awful. And they're like, no, 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 it's not about basketball. It's football, football, football. They're like, we'll get our basketball better. Just let's do football. They're like, no, no, no. So Syracuse said no. And Pitt said no. And all these other schools said no. That's saying no football is not king. So then Penn State said, okay, well, we'll just go to the Big Ten. So Penn State's been in the Big Ten for 33 years. Everything's been fine. And all those, but then after that, so the Big Ten expanded to Nebraska, Rutgers, and Maryland. Why they pick Rutgers? Why they pick Maryland? Because Rutgers is in New Jersey and New York and Maryland's a D.C. for that. And then the SEC added schools, Texas and Missouri, but more just an adding type of thing. 
But then the last three years, that's when the SEC said, SEC said we're bringing in Oklahoma and Texas. That said, a, a, you know, a shot across the bow to everyone saying we're going to become the power conference. And then the Big 12, then at that point when they did that, the Big 12 said they lost Oklahoma, Texas. They're like, Big 12 is going away. There will be no Big 12. They, what can they do without Oklahoma, Texas? They made a smart move. They brought in UCF from Orlando, Cincinnati, big TV market, Houston, fourth biggest TV market, and BYU. And then they hired Brett Yormack as their commissioner. Brett Yormack was an executive at Rock Nation. He ran the Barclays Center, was in charge of the whole Barclays Center being built and the whole debts coming to Brooklyn, all those things. Brilliant, because a lot of these commerce commissioners are just people sort of in academics or in sports, athletic directors. He was a businessman. And he said, I think we have to get our TV deal done really fast. So he got he jumped and worked on a TV deal with Fox and ESPN, and at the same time, the Pac-12 was just sitting around like, well, we'll we'll you you know we'll figure out what's happened. We have UCLA, we have USC with the LA market, we're great. Well, then the Big Ten takes UCLA and USC. <laughs> Suddenly, the Pac-12 doesn't look so strong. The SEC then signs their like eighty million dollar a year. So each team gets like around eighty million dollars a year. The Big Ten gets about eighty million dollar a year. And the Big 12 does a deal for about $30 million a year. And then that set a statement. And they were said, what about Notre Dame? What about Notre Dame? Well, Notre Dame gets around 70. So they're sort of like a Big 10. There's no need for them to really go into a conference that they won't go to the Big, Big 10 yet. But the Pac-12 could not get this TV deal done. You, and everybody's doing TV deals. Pac-12 can't get it done. ESPN, they're laying off everybody, as you can see. They're not spending any more money. And so then the Colorado saw what was happening a few months ago. They moved. They jumped to the Big 12 and said, we're going to the Big 12. That's a big surprise. And then ever the, big, the Pac-12 says, we have a deal. George Kalavikov, their, their uh, commissioner, says, we're going to have a deal. On a Friday, my friends were texting me. They're like, the Pac-12 is together. Apple is going to come in. They're going to pay him $30 million a year. But as we know with the Apple, with the MLS, they're trying to watch Messi. If you don't have the right streaming and this and that, you can't watch it. And if you're the U.S., if you're these Pac-12 teams, you want to be on TV. Someone's turning the dial and watching you so you can see the players. You don't want to just have, if I'm a fan of Oregon or Washington, I want to be on television and I want people to watch it. And they pulled out and Oregon and Washington ran to the Big Ten and said, could you take us? Now, USC and UCLA, they're full members. They got the $80 million, $70, $80 million a year. But US, Oregon and Washington said, well, we'll take half. Washington's in Seattle. Oregon is Nike, money, all that stuff. So that's why the Big Ten wanted them. And at that point, then Arizona, Arizona State, this all happened on Friday, and Utah said, let's go to the Big 12 for $30 million because we don't think the Pac-12 is going to have anything with this Apple streaming, like a $20 million plus and whatever, and they run to the Big 12. So now that leaves the Big Ten with 18 teams, the SEC with 16 teams, the Big 12 with 16 teams, and the Pac-12 teams, Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, and Washington, that's left. It's a pack four of those teams. Nobody wants Oregon State. They're in Corvallis, Washington. Washington State's in Pullman, Washington. Stanford and Cal really don't move the needle, but Washington, you know, they have huge endowments. Stanford has a $38 billion endowment, and Cal has a $7 billion endowment. So that's sort of where we are now uh, going forward. So is it safe to say the Pac-12, you know, in, in a couple of months is not going to exist? It'll be a defunct conference? I would say so, because I don't think the Mountain West schools, and we're talking schools like Boise State and, uh, and UNLV, like they get about $5 million a year. But if you're a Pac-12 school, you thought you were getting like 30. So Oregon State, Washington, Cal, and Stanford thought, we're getting $30 million a year from even staying in the Pac-12. They don't want to get out. And now they're going to get, if they go to the Mountain West, it gets five, and you don't see Stanford. The problem with Stanford is, is they have all the other sports. They're one of the top programs in the country. They're the best swimming, diving, women's basketball, all these other teams they're great at. They're just maybe not that good at football, but they were good when David Shaw was the coach. Cal really isn't good at other sports, too. So I don't know where they go. They're talking to the ACC. I think if I was Stanford and Cal, I'd go to the Big Ten, and I'd say, we'll play for nothing. Like, just put us in there. We have big endowment. We'll play. Just go with the Big Ten and, and let us be in the Big Ten and make it the Big 20. That's what, the, that's what they – I think that is their – because their schools fit. Stanford and Cal academically. The Big Ten has the academic schools like Michigan. Like, it sort of fits there. USC, UCLA. And then it would allow all the West Coast teams. You have Oregon, Washington, Stanford, and Cal, and USC and UCLA playing. So I think that's what they should hope to do. Um, that would be, I think, their best thing that, but at that point. And then Oregon State and Washington either go to the Mountain West or go to the Big 12 and say, please take us, please, somewhere, so they can have something. But then that leads us to the final question, is the ACC. Well, I also, what about Stanford? Is it ridiculous to think that they could maybe go independent? 
I mean, pull a Notre Dame. They're an academic institution, like you said. They have a big endowment. Do they need any of these other people? Can they just say, you know, we're going to be our own beast? That's a good question. Now, the thing is, they would never get the money that Notre Dame would get. The Stanford brand is not the Notre Dame brand, but they do have the bigger endowment. They would be one of the biggest endowments in all of sports, at all of any university. So they potentially say, if we're going to run a money losing program, we could potentially do that. BYU was an independent for a while. It worked a little bit for them. Then they decided to join the Big 12. I think it's maybe temporarily that might be something they would want to do because I don't think they fit in with the Big 12. I don't think Stanford and Texas Tech fits, and I don't think Stanford and the Mountain West, some of like San Jose State, it's just, it doesn't fit with that. So I think Stanford is in a in, – they're both in binds in terms of what to do because of their academic – but they weren't strong enough football-wise. It's all about football in order to get into these conferences, and I think that's what really hurt them in terms of getting in. And, you know, people say, well, the Pac-12 will take the Mountain West schools. Well, the Mountain West schools aren't going to get that money if they go in there, so maybe if you're a Mountain West school, you'll stay where you're at. It's like instead of us merging with you, you merge with you know, one of those things. I'm merging with you or you merging with us or one of those things. So um, that's where – and you never know. Like UNLV and Boise might go to the Big 12. The Big 12 might say we want a team in Las Vegas, and we want Boise as a, you know, a great football team and we should potentially do that as i said the mountain west america they only pay their they have like a five million dollar year tv deal the big 12 is 30 million a year and then the sec and the uh big 10 is 80 million 70 80 so it's a huge difference but then that leads of course to the acc 715 this is ira on sports true oldies channel i'm mike balsamo you can always follow ira on social media at ira on sports stick around brad beluchian uh, is going to join us at 745 yeah so what happens to the acc and you know Florida, we're kind of ACC country. We've got two ACC schools. It seems to me like the rumors are pointing towards Florida State and Clemson getting out of here, going to the SEC as well. That's the biggest thing, and that's what everyone's going to look at right now because everybody, the SEC schools are valuable. Florida State is just the name in Florida. Everybody with like Florida, that's a school. And it used to be the SEC says Florida said we don't want another ACC. We don't want Florida State in. We don't. We're, we want to be the only Florida school in the SEC. That's out the window now. But because the breakup fees are so high, hundred there was no breakup fees with these Pac-12 teams because their contract had expired. So they're going to play this year and they have to pay anything. They get to move for free. Whereas now Florida State is in talk. They had their tied up. They don't own their TV rights till 2036, and they have to pay a hundred. $20 million breakup fee. So that's the issue. But if you look at the teams, the Florida State, the Clemson, North Carolina would love to be in the Big Ten or the SEC. Virginia, Virginia Tech, these are huge names. Miami, Syracuse with the Northern Market, Georgia Tech's in Atlanta, Pittsburgh, Boston College in Boston, Louisville's a big market too, NC State, Raleigh, they actually have a Carolina Hurricanes, they have a hockey team. Who are the left of The worst school, you know, my alma mater for law, Duke. Duke is not, everyone thinks Duke is so popular. In North Carolina, nobody cares about Duke. Duke is a national brand of basketball. It is the best brand, but no one cares about basketball. And Wake Forest is also another, these are two private schools that really would not have any home to go to. So if the ACC just went away, it would have to be a situation where Duke would have to join up. Like, I don't know what Duke would do. Duke would be in the Stanford type situation. We're trying to figure out, but then, of course they have that big basketball brand to figure out what to have. And Kansas, this is what Kansas was facing when the big 12 went away. Nobody wanted Kansas football. Now, you know, Duke, we'll see what happens with Duke in terms of what happens, but that is, will Florida state and Clemson say, we're just done. We're going to assume and whatever, but also the ACC teams might all decide to say, if they all agree to say, we're getting rid of the conference, then the conference is done. So that might be a thing where if everyone feels but Duke and Wake have a home somewhere, then that could be the other possibility that would happen. And that's what's weird to me, Ira. A lot of these other schools are football schools. A lot of the ACC schools, they're basketball schools, or you know, they have more, um, you know, more history of success playing basketball. So you kind of don't want to break that up. That you're leaving good. You know, you go to the SEC. I mean, what Alabama has been good for a few years. It's not like the competition that's in the ACC now. So, to me, a couple of these teams are a little bit of a crossroads. Like, what do we do? We have to favor one sport over the other. Well, they've always got a favorite football. Football is what's driving everything, and I think that's the key. Is So that's where the thing with the ACC, though, is that the football programs, as much as we make fun of them, they, they are, it's a combination of two things. North Carolina is a big draw. Everyone in North Carolina follows North Carolina football. It's big. Virginia, Virginia. So even though they're not good, they actually are the draw in their areas, and I think that helps. But you're right. You're going basketball is not leaving this, and that's what people are, you know, people. Now, the Big 12, Yormack is brilliant. He, he actually is is thinking about basketball-wise because they just brought Arizona and Houston and Baylor. Now they have this big basketball conference. They're thinking about maybe adding Gonzaga. 
And who won the national championship this past year? Connecticut. Do you realize Connecticut's an independent? So Connecticut plays independent football, and they won the national championship in basketball. So maybe your Mac is thinking, I could bring Gonzaga and Connecticut to the Big 12 and make Big 12 the huge basketball power by just saying, okay, you guys just play basketball. You don't play football. So there's things that could happen. But, yeah, definitely in Florida, we're looking at Miami. We're looking at Florida State. You know they have huge donors with Lots of money. They're saying, hey, look, I don't want to be playing. You know, we want to, we want in a better conference. We want to play in this. So we'll see what happens. But right now, that's the big thing is people are going to focus on the ACC and what happens at Florida State and Clemson. As I said, they're tied up with these breakup fees, and uh, there would be court cases for years trying to get out of it. Yeah, that's uh, great points about UConn and Gonzaga. That would really make it interesting because you'd have two big basketball conferences. The um, athletic director of UNC said, we're not leaving. We love this conference. If they want to leave, they can wait till 2023 or 2036 or pay the fee. Uh, so they're entrenched. So I guess that's a good thing for, for Tar Heels fans. I think, it, I think at that point, that's where if you have enough of the ACC schools holding Florida State and Clemson to the league, that's going to be the difference. You hit the nail on the head right there. If Florida State, if, if the rest of the ACC says we want to stay together, hey, we're okay with the 30. We're getting as much as the Big 12 is getting. Florida, but the other thing that Florida State and Clemson is trying to do is Florida State and Clemson are saying this. Okay, we'll stay, but we want to make as much as money as we'd make at the, as in the SEC or the Big Ten. So you pay us $70, $80 million and Duke and Wake and those schools, you're going to get $10 million. And that, that's going to be hard for the you know, Duke and Wake to say, well, whoa, we're going to it's a hard sell. give out money to you, Florida State. Like, that's crazy. We beat you in football. You know, we, we, why would we do that? So that's what one thing, that's one thing they're pushing. Florida State and Clemson are saying, we'll stay in the ACC. It's fine, but we don't want an even distribution. We want what, most of the money because we think we're the big names. So that's what we want. So when Florida State gets blown out by somebody 40 to nothing, they're like, yeah, you want all this money, but you, you know, you're losing 40 to nothing in a game. <laughs> Ari, you have anything else you want to talk about uh, in college before we move on? No, I just love talking about it. So I could do it forever. Well, you, predicted, you predicted the Pac-12's like d- demise weeks ago. Yes. Nailed that. Speaking of nailing it, uh, U.S. Women's National Team did not. And me and you, I love the U.S. Women's National Team. I watch all the games. Um, it's been a fantastic ride, um, you know, winning the last two. It's hard to three-peat, but we said last week on this show, this does not look like a championship team. This doesn't look like the best team out there. They looked sluggish in all of their games except Vietnam, you know, who's new to new to the soccer world, and they're going home. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Two-time defending champions, even money almost favored to win the, the Cup. Uh, they brought in Julie Ertz, Becky Rapino, Alex Morgan, players that have played on the teams in the past. So they had the experience. They had some of the best younger players that are playing, like Sophia Smith, Anthony Rodman. So you thought that. But in the end, it's just they had definitely had the wrong coach. I mean, there's an issue uh, where, whether the, the, whether their coach could was, was, was really up for the task in terms of what they were trying to do. Blatimo and Orofsky, who they did a bronze in Tokyo, and it's clearly he wasn't ready for this. They had injuries to Mallory Swanson, Becky Sauerbrunn. They had 14 new players, but they're still the heavy favorite. They went USA against Netherlands 1-1. And uh, then Portugal, they tied 0-0. After the match, Carly Lloyd, who is as decorated as anybody in soccer in terms of winning two World Cups and many three medals in the Olympics and everything, and been the best player in the world, criticized, said, look, you guys are celebrating after the, the match. I don't see fire. I don't see enthusiasm. I don't see things. And then instead of the team saying, well, Carly, I mean, this is like the Charles Barkley type criticism that, you know, Charles says that a lot. They're, they're like attacking Carl, like how dare Carly Lloyd question the fact that we were, that we did anything. Well, how dare Carly? Well, you know, she was a player who was a star player. She won titles, who knows what it takes to win and that she's getting paid to be a commentator. What she's supposed to say saying, it's okay. It's okay. I know you guys are number one seed. I know you're the favorite, but you've scored one, one against Netherlands at zero, zero against Portugal. She's paid to make comments. And if she sees it and whatever else is seeing, I think people would say, you're not, you know, you're not a good commentator. So instead of the team saying, Carly, you know, we want to play better too. Carly wants us to play better, and I think we should play better also. But they instead attack Carly Lloyd. That was, I think, the first mistake. When they're attacking the commentator, instead of saying, yes, we should play better, that was the problem. And then they play Sweden, and, and that was a disaster. Yeah, and that's the thing. This is not a talking head like me or you mocking their, you know, their makeup and, and their, their resolution. This is the 
former captain of the team. She just retired. If anybody on the planet knows what to look for in the U.S. women's national team, it's Carly Lloyd. And the fact that she was getting backlash about telling the truth and saying what we all saw with our own eyes, just from a professional standpoint, just ridiculous to me. Um, I, I get it. I, I was a little bothered. I mean, after a loss and, you know, the ties with, with inferior teams, they're making TikToks on the sideline. I get that, you know, they want to do stuff for the fans, but... Can you show, like, a little bit of remorse that you lost? I mean, like, Alex Morgan did. You know, she's she's hanging her head. But a lot of the other players are dancing around like, hey, you know, we're, we're just happy to be here. When you're the, the best team in the world, they're supposed to be, you're not happy to be there when you tie. You know, it kind of goes back to the, um, uh, what's his name, Budenholzer of, of Milwaukee. So, you know, some of his statements where it's like, no, you should be mad that you lost. Like, th- this is, that's what g- got me more than them not winning, Ira. Right, and then they go against Sweden, and zero, zero, I want, you know, get up at 5 in the morning. The question I have is, do I stay up late and watch Nate Diaz and Jake Paul, which is ridiculous, or do I get up early and watch the soccer team? I'm like, I'm going to give up 5 o'clock. I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to watch it. And America was inspired. The USA played much better. They made some changes, but Movevic, the goalie for Sweden, was excellent, played well. But it wasn't like America was – everyone said, well, America played better. Yeah, when they played so poorly in the first three games, and then they're like, they still – their chances weren't great. They seem to go one-on-one too much, 0-0 in regulation, 0-0 after the overtime. And then you go to the penalty kicks, and the USA was up. Now, they, they had a way to strive. They're up 3-2, and Sweden misses. So they're up 3-2. And then Rapino, Megan Rapino, has a chance to score to go up 4-2 and, 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 uh, and at that point and win it, really. And she, and, and she misses. And then Sweden misses again. And then uh, Smith has a chance to, to win it with a goal, with a, with a penalty kick. She misses. Sweden ties to make it 3-3. And then they get Allison Mayer, their goalie. It was crazy. They had, America brings their goalie in. She kicks it in against goalie versus goalie, makes it 4-3. Sweden tied to 4-4. And then O'Hara misses hers. And then Sweden kicks the ball. You know, the Mayer, Mayer uh, blocked the ball up in the air. It was like, you know, out of the movies almost. And rolled around, but it just crossed the line and loses 5-4. So by, by a millimeter, they lost. But still, did even it's zero zero in regulation. This is a team that should be scoring goals and goals and goals. wasn't able to do anything. And, and there's been some questions like there were players, and I'm not saying I'm expert on women's soccer, but you always hear this when a team fails. It's like, wait, what players didn't they add? And there were some star players in the women's soccer league that weren't added that were big goal scorers that said, look, if I was there, I would have scored some goals. So there's question about how you're going to make up the team. Yeah, and that was my biggest takeaway last week coming to the show is that who's going to score goals here? Alex Morgan's supposed to be the goal scorer, and she's non-existent. So who's going to step up and score some goals? The days of Abby Wambach standing in there and scoring hat tricks are over, unfortunately. And it, it's going to be—definitely a, a new coach is needed, and I, I think that move is going to happen sooner than later. Um, anything else we want to talk about here? I mean, it's disappointing, but— the fact that they are so young kind of gives me a little bit of hope for the future, but the re- it appears the rest of the world is caught up. And I went through a long period of my life watching the U.S. women's national team just destroy people, and it was a lot of fun, and I hope we can get those those days back. I, I think, though, I think the disappointing, I mean, Colin Coward said, well, it's okay, you lose, you know, it's hard to keep dynasties going, but I think you have a mix of teams, and you would hope that the players would have, and there's a, you, you think that America has more depth than almost any other team, and they would have came in, and, and also the fire they have to play, I mean, that's why dynasties, well, we, we appreciate dynasties that win all the time for a long period of time, because they keep having that drive, and that's what, you know, Curry comes back and, and, and plays hard and wins, it. And, and it just, it seemed like there is that aspect that Carly Lloyd mentioned, is that there are two much in, into commercials and too much into TikToks and Instagram followers and not in winning the games and doing those things that you have to. I mean, it looked like America was a step too slow. They looked like they were out of shape and, certain, and they're younger. So why, how are they a step slow? How are they against these other teams? And these other teams are playing with a lot of fire. And uh, so I think, it, no, I think it's a bad loss. I'm not willing to say, oh, when you're a favorite, if it was, it, you were a favorite to win, you were the big money favorite to win this. You have the best players on the team and you have the best depth. And to, and to come out, this is the first time they've ever exited this early uh, in a tournament, and the first time any time a defending champion has ever exited this early in the round of 16. So I think it's a terrible loss, and, and I think it's, yeah, I think, I, but I, I think if we can't criticize the team, then that's the problem, you know, when Carly Lloyd criticizes it, then, then it's hopeless, and you're never going to get better. You're just going to keep losing all the time. I, I, I did hear a great point, and this makes a lot of sense. Almost everyone on the U.S. women's national team plays in the American Women's Soccer League. The girls on the other teams, like, say, the goalie Masovic for, for Sweden, she plays for Chelsea. 
the women's side of Chelsea, one of the biggest soccer brands in the world. Maybe that's what they need to be doing. You look at the U.S. men's team, all the good players play in Europe. They're not playing in the MLS. So maybe that's an issue that these girls should maybe go overseas, play with the best competition all the time, instead of playing you know, here in our fairly new women's soccer league. That's a question. I mean, people say, well, that's, that would hurt the league and do those things, but maybe play more competitions against other teams. Um, but a lot of it is, look, Mia Hamm was playing that. I mean, there's a, there's a, you go back and forth. I just think it's coaching. I think it's use of the players, the selection of the team, the focus on what you have to do. Yes, the rest of the world's caught up, but we should still – I just didn't think this team looked like they had the fire to win, and they didn't play that fire. When you look at the past USA soccer teams, they, those, those teams look like they really – you know, this is – this is do or die. We're going to win this game. And Brandy Tastain taking her shirt off. I mean, all that, that passion you just didn't see when you watch these games. And the passing, you just, it just, it was, everything was one on one. And uh, Sophia Smith is a great player. She's tremendous. But you can't just give her the ball and say, go one on four and try to win. She's not going to do that. They're not Lionel Messi out there. So that's the problem. <laughs> 729, it's Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. Follow Ira on social media, at Ira on Sports. I'm Mike Balsamo. You brought him up. Let's talk about some good soccer here, Ira. I, I kind of feel like an idiot now for asking Jonathan Clegg, our resident soccer expert, uh, about a month or two ago. Like, will Leo Messi be able to just step right in and take Inner Miami from the worst team in the MLS to the top? And he said yes. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. Day in and day out, Leo Messi is amazing. I, I just everything about Messi is Brady. It, it just seems like that. It just seems like it's it's not just that he scores the goals. It's the fact that everyone elevates their play. It is wonderful to see that. And I, my friends who are huge soccer fans are just like loving it. They're like players that were average are good. Players that are good are better. You know, everyone gets better. Everyone. He's not, he's not stepping into the mix. He's not a, he is literally lifting the entire team. Just like Brady, like Brady couldn't play defense, but the defense played better for Tampa when he was on the team. Like all, everything was better. It's just that presence. And it's in it, and everything he does, he, you know, he scored seven now seven goals in four matches. He uh, he could have scored more, but he doesn't. On some of the penalty kicks, he chose to give to other players, so he's actually given up a couple goals. They were down against Dallas three one, and they came back and tied it. They went five three in a shootout. He is just super in in terms of his passing, in terms of his leadership, everything about it. And what it's just it's just wonderful. I mean, it's really tremendous and, and better than it is people who said, boy, Messi's gonna make a difference, where it's it's even more than a difference. And what is what has he done? And it's glad he's seen in Miami. I mean, it is just amazing. The different he's made more of a difference than LeBron did when LeBron came to the E, which is shocking to say. But I, I think at that point, I think this leadership that he brings, the knowledge and the kind of person he is, uh just you can see why he is viewed as one of the greatest players of all time in a sport that's been played forever. And it's just wonder. It's great that he's playing in South Florida. It's absolutely incredible. And if you haven't seen the first free kick that he nailed was beautiful, but the free kick he nailed yesterday uh, in, I think it was the third goal that they scored just absolutely brilliant. No goalkeeper in the world is saving that shot. He is just a magician and it's fun to watch. Uh, when do we play next? I think it's on. Um, well, they have to play the winner of is, oh, August 11th the, against either Charlotte or Houston. So they're going to play. They're playing. This is their in-season. They have NBA has the in-season tournament. This is the in-season MLS tournament that they have. I think people don't really care about what it is just that they can watch Messi play. He could be playing against a couple kids down the street. I think they would sell out everything. So it's great. And, and it's been such a such a shot in the arm for the sport. As I said, he's catching a wave. I mean, soccer was always improving. Always there's such excitement. And and he's just, you know, he's like turning the small little wave into like the Hawaii 5-0 wave, which is great. It's a tidal wave uh, <laughs> for Inter-Miami. So, Ira, we talk a lot that I, I watch baseball all the time. And I was watching baseball Saturday night, and I see that a fight breaks out between two all-stars, Jose Ramirez and Tim Anderson Jr., and then I saw it 55 more times because MLB Network showed this fight on replay. Every 10 minutes they were showing it again. You want to tell us what happened? Well, I think you might tell better if you saw it 55 times, but all I know is that uh, Tim Anderson dropped his gloves. I mean, this, at first I thought it was hockey. First of all, you I've were never seen that in a baseball game. Jake Paul, yeah, did the Jake Paul Nate Diaz fight start? I was confused by, about everything that was going on with the whole thing when you were texting. And then Tim Anderson drops his, drops his glove. And Ramirez goes, You want to drop your gloves? 
definitely hockey. So combines the two sports you love the most, hockey and baseball. And then Ramirez, Anderson gets a shot at Ramirez. He takes it well. And then Ramirez just knocks out Anderson. Now, UFC 300 is coming up in April. I really believe that they should somehow put this guy. You're talking about Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. I think Ramirez, Anderson could be another thing for UFC 300 <laughs> because that was tremendous. And Anderson knocked out, you know, not cold, but certainly knocked out strong on the ground. Well, who doesn't like when a bully starts a fight and gets knocked out? Everybody loves that. Jose Ramirez went in head first um, on a double, and Anderson apparently tagged him really hard, and then wouldn't get off, like wouldn't get off from a up, a move from above him to let him up. So he gets up and he says something to him. Anderson then, like you said, throws his glove to the ground and squares up. I've never seen that in a baseball game. So Jose Ramirez puts his hands up, you know, like what are you going to do when someone's in your face? Not to mention Tim Anderson probably has five inches on Jose Ramirez. Anderson throws four punches at him before Jose Ramirez retaliates. He throws one punch and knocks him out. It was like poetic justice. And the league agrees with, with my take on it that Anderson is being a bully here. He got a six-game suspension. Ramirez got a three-game suspension. They're both appealing. We don't really know what's going to happen here. But I was glad to see that they didn't get equal suspensions because it was clear that someone started the fight here and the other guy was defending himself. Um, anything else I see that Ramirez would love the three-game suspension and knocking Anderson out. Like, that's, that's the best thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, but, like, you couldn't miss this fight. They kept replaying it. Because the, the bench is cleared, then the two managers get in fights, which that happens sometimes, but not all that often. Terry Francona's got to be, what, 75 years old? And he's out there throwing dukes against uh, Pedro Griffal. These teams hate each other. This might be the new Yankees-Red Sox of the 90s and early 2000s. Well, um, that's nothing tops. Pedro Martinez taking Don Zimmer, who was like no. 80 or 90 years old, when Don Zimmer ran out there and Pedro <laughs> Martinez beat him up. That has to be one of the funniest fights of all time. When, when Don Zimmer, who I, no one thought could even run, ran out and, and, and Pedro Martinez knocks him out. So that was, nothing is better than that. That was the best. Or when Nolan Ryan, uh, uh, Robin Ventura, was it Nolan, when Robin Ventura ran out there yes. and he thought that, uh, Ryan was hitting him, Ryan just dropped his gloves and punched Robin Ventura. So those are my, some of my other best fights. Well, Ryan, Nolan Ryan got him in a headlock. He ran at him and <laughs> Nolan Ryan threw him right into a headlock and started punching him. Uh, yeah, these are some, this is going to go down in, in, that, uh, in that pantheon of amazing baseball fights. Um, speaking of keeping it with baseball for a minute, so what the Mets did here is kind of funny. They haven't won a game since they traded away these players. And it's almost like Ira, they basically just bought prospects because they're retaining two-thirds of these guys' deals while letting them go. So it's when you break it down, it's like they paid $20 million each for three prospects. It's a little crazy to me. We had uh, uh, Mike Carroll on after the, the last Monday, and the Verlander trade wasn't done, and we talked about the Scherzer trade, and then we see Verlander was traded, and they're paying $54 million. I, the Mets are paying $54 million because they, pay, they said a Verlander off so they're paying the majority of Verlander's contract. They're paying the majority of Scherzer's contract of $35 million. So now the Mets next year are going to be paying like $60 million or $70 million to players not on their team, which is going to be more than most payrolls in many teams in baseball. I mean, even the, the Mark Hanna trade to the Brewers, they're paying $10 million of the contract plus a $2.5 million buyout. All they were doing was trading to get these prospects. These prospects better pan out because if they don't, then this is unbelievable. Like, they should have just gone to the season and say, hey, you're uh, – but they didn't even get, like, the super-duper prospects. They got, like, maybe their fourth or fifth. I mean, I, I think there is going to be a question where Lasagna Gascuna was you know, the 44th-ranked player in the system. The Mets' farm system was terrible, but to go out and make these trades. But the other thing is if you're a Mets fan, you're – you need. You thought, oh, you're retooling for this year, but next year you're not going to have anybody on their team. I, I question everything. You have Lindor, who's terrible. Now you're paying people. You got rid of players that actually could play. Now what are you going to do next year in your starting rotation? And you got rid of Tian Walker, who was leading the National League in wins. I, I, I just don't know where the Mets go. They made so much noise. They were going to sign Carlos Correa. They signed Verlander. They got Scherzer. They did all this with their money. And as I said last week, Artie Marino did the same thing with signing Pujols and Rendon and all those pitchers remember he signed for the Angels. He had tons of money. Just because you have money and spend, if you spend wrong, it doesn't work. No, absolutely right. And we're seeing it here. And we, we talked about it. The pitchers were not the issue on this team. Why not just retain? You're paying two-thirds of the salary anyway. Keep these guys. It just makes no sense to me. And it just seems like a, an owner who's new to this trying to throw money at a problem and the, the smart owners around the league are laughing. Like, this is ridiculous. And the fact that they're not going to compete next year... It's just crazy. Here's an interesting stat, Ira. Max Scherzer is the first baseball player ever to be getting paid $15 million or more by three teams. 
<laughs> he gets 50. He's getting over 15 million from the Mets and the Rangers, and he gets 15 million a year from the Nationals still. So good things and are I good for Max Scherzer. I said, I said last week, I, I don't uh, even. He, Steve Cohn came out and said we only had a 20% chance. Well, that's some stupid ESPN. And guess what? I'll show you all these seasons. What are the Panthers? We talked about this before. What are the Florida Panthers' chances like two weeks before the season ended to make the playoffs? 1%. Like, yeah. 5%. Yeah, I, I don't want – the thing is, you have a chance for the playoffs. You're the Mets. You go for it. Work something out later. Trade them at the end of the year. I, I cannot believe that you give – because what if the Mets did make the playoffs? Think about what September would have been, what October would have been. The run, people would have been talking about it 15 years from now, about what the great run the Mets – like, why in the world, do you, when you have a chance, I don't think it's like – he goes, we have to think smart, we have to think this, we have to think that. I don't know. I think it's a huge mistake, and I think that Steve Cohn, you can spend all the money you want, but I, it's a, you know, I, short of getting Otani, I don't know how you get back from this. Like, I, I think it's almost like he's going to have to pay Otani $100 million a year in order to make this all work because this makes no sense to me at all. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, we talked about it on the show. The Nationals were like eight games under 500 with, with 30 games to play. And, and you know, like, as long as you get into the playoffs, you have a chance, especially when you have two of the greatest pitchers of all time at the top of your rotation. Mets are in a free fall, as a Yankee fan doesn't bother me. Let's keep going, Ira. You said you had the, the greatest seats you've ever had to a tennis match uh, at the D.C. Open. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I love the Open. I love these small tournaments. I love it. That's why I like the Miami. Delray, Miami, I like it. You can go. These are top players. Now, there was no uh, Djokovic. There was no, you know, Nadal's been injured, not there. But the Akaraz wasn't there. But I was hoping to see TFO and Fritz, but they got knocked out earlier in the match. In the men's match, Dan Evans beat Tallinn Greeks for, which you probably don't know any of those names. Evans is from England. Um, but it was, I bought a seat for not that much money in the first row, and it was just so cool right behind the baseline. So you can see, like, you're almost on the court. But the first match was Coco Goff and Marie Sakari. And Brad Gilbert is her, is her new coach. And with Pereira, his two coaches. And they were literally, during the match, you could see, tell them, you're allowed to coach. Nothing's illegal. She'd come over to the towel. It was 100 degrees after every point, And they'd say, don't drop your shoulder. Or they'd say, they kept telling her, Sakari is known as being the best shape, in shape for, uh, athlete, fittest, fittest tennis player of all time. And they're saying, you worked harder. You're in better shape. Remember all the things you did. Remember all this. You're in better shape. You're in better shape. They kept motivating her like that. And they kept saying, like, fight harder. They say, go for this serve. Go for this serve. Make this serve, whatever. And then, you know, you could just, it wasn't just general, like, go get them. And it was neat. They're, they shared a whole box full of people. The only people that said something was Pereira and, uh, and Gilbert. They're the only ones who talked to her. Everyone else clapped, but no one was, and she came to the towel almost every time, and they would talk back and forth. And I'm, like, right, like, literally an inch away, because I'm right in front of where her towel box was. But I was so impressed with her. She has all the ability in the world. She flies around the court, has power both forward and back end. She has power on the serve. She just got to get that going. She plays doubles. The last three years, she's one of the top doubles players. She's improving her, her game at the net. And look, when Venus and Serena came in, they jumped to number one. Carl Zacharias came and jumped to number one. This is, uh, Coco has jumped the top 20, but it's hard to get to that top, but you're almost seeing where she's, I love this. Like she is really grinding. She's only 19 and she was 24 or 25, but next year she could win three majors. Like that's where she's headed. She, she's plays like Venus a lot. She's a, she flies around the court. She's not that strong build that Serena is that power, but she has so much power on her shots. And, uh, it was just great to see her, you know, just stay how she motivates herself, how she talks to herself when the match was over. She ran and hugged everybody. I got great videos of that. But I think just so cool to be right on the court and watch Zachary play. And both of them after that, Zachary is from Greece, very well thought of. She said both said nice things to each about each other and about how, you know, Coco said when I came on the tour, this Maria was the first person to come and greet me and show me around and show me where to eat and do things and was so sweet and nice. And you like to see that. And considering that, but it was a big win for her at this tournament. I know it's a smaller tournament, Masters 500, but I think it sets up for the U.S. Open. So, Congratulations to Coco and Dan Evans uh, for winning the men's side. All right, let's talk a little golf. Wyndham Classic over the weekend. And this tournament got a lot more press than it usually would because... Justin Justin Thomas, one of the best, you know, former best golfers in the world, needed to finish top ten to get into the playoff. But something was interesting. You texted me on Wednesday that you loved Russell Henley at like either twenty eight or thirty eight to one. And going into Sunday, the final round, I'm thinking Ira's a genius. <laughs> he didn't have what it takes at the end. Lucas Glover is going to be your champ at the Wyndham. Russell Henley finished second though. Like if you bet top five, it's still great. Yeah, you did awesome. 
I think Lucas Glover, I am obsessed with Wikipedia on golfers. I think I'm, I think I love, I, he's 43 years old, won five tour wins, but the 2009 U.S. Open, I was at that U.S. Open. He won, it was in Best Page. That's the one where it was pouring down rain the whole time. They actually played like Monday till at night to play. It was chaos. I followed Tiger. It's the only time I've ever watched Tiger. There's been like eight people following him. Like on Sunday night when it was pouring down rain, when my shoes, I, I lost like three pairs of shoes. I think it was walking socks out there because it was so muddy. And he's on like a miles and miles away. There was like eight people around Tiger Woods. It was the greatest thing. And, uh, but he, he, he won that U S open in 2009. And the most amazing thing is that he had the previous opens. He missed the cut three times. And after that, he's been in the U S open eight missed cuts, a 58th, a 42nd and a 17th and his next 11 and has never has played 33 majors since then. And no top 10. So he goes and so he's let's talk about a one hit wonder for Lucas Glover, but he's hung on the tour, you know, has the four victories and 43 years old, but to come up and, you know, out of nowhere and win the Wyndham was really good. Henley finished 18 under, uh, Horstel 16 under. And, uh, the story was Justin Thomas who needed that cut at the end and just missed it to get to the FedEx playoffs. Can you imagine that Justin Thomas, who was a few years ago, the number one player in the world uh, did not even get in the top 70 to make the, the playoffs, which is, it's just, it's unfathomable to even think. Imagine a parlay before the season started of Justin Thomas finishing outside the top 70 and Ricky Fowler finishing in the top 10. You, you, it, you could have retired. Possible. Remember, Thomas just won the PGA and he won the players' title a couple years ago. I've never seen a player lose. It's not like he's been. It, people say, well, was, he, "Was he hurt?" He's not hurt. He just he just played terrible. And it's like it, it, for someone who was so consistent, he's not someone who was up and down. Who was just a consistently very good player. It's just amazing. Like that, Justin Thomas. This is one of the shocking things you could you could imagine. And at least he has a good sense of. You know, I, I, I don't know. He, it just seems like it. It's just, I cannot believe he didn't make the top 70. But he's still talking about he thinks he's going to get on the Ryder Cup team. I think that's impossible. Why in the, how in the world could America put a player on the Ryder Cup team that's not in the top 70 in the world? It, not only that, it, it'd be a popularity contest then. And it's not the fact of putting Justin Thomas in. It's who are you taking out to put him in? It's just not fair to someone who's not as big a name that's playing much better golf right now. Uh, what's next on the slate? Um, well, really, what's the next thing to say is just the, is the FedEx championships in Memphis, and then it gets cut down. That's 70, then it's 50 at the BMW in Chicago, and then the tour championships in Atlanta. Then the season's over. There's only three tournaments left, um, and that's it. And then the schedule for 2024 came out, which is very similar to what the schedule is now, um, except that the Honda Classic is now called the Classic at the Palm Beaches. They still don't have a sponsor. It's after the Mexico event. Then it's going to be the Classic of Palm Beaches, but then Bay Hill is elevated. Players is elevated, and before the week before is Genesis. I still think they're not going to get the players, and this doesn't solve the problem. And of course, they release the schedule, and they don't say what's happening with the live golfers. Are they going to play or not play? So everything is still up in the open. I, it's just amazing how they have this agreement, and no one knows what the agreement is between Live and the PGA Tour. Tiger's now on the PGA Policy Board, and I don't know what this means, Ira. I think that Jay Monahan needed cover, and I felt like he said, "You know, we need you, Tiger. Come on and help me." I don't know if it's a, I, but at one point, I, I think Tiger he could easily say, "Jay, you're gone." Like, I mean, he has the power to. I think the players wanted Tiger on this. It was a board that was the majority on the board were not players, and they're like, "Wait a second, how are we doing all this?" They trust Tiger. That's the one thing about Tiger is that the players, all the players. Trust him, like him. He, you know, he's gone from someone who was really an outsider to the whole, you know, and now it's sort of the young players that everyone, they all, they all respect him. They all want Tiger. They feel Tiger will make the right call. He's the one who said when Jay Monahan goes, like, we're not, we're going to be like live, no cut events. Tiger goes, I like to cut. We're going to have cuts. Genesis has cuts. Bay Hill has a cut. Um, Memorial has a cut with Jack Nicholas. So he's, you know, he's calling the shots to some extent. Now, what that means, I don't know, but I just know that he is going to have a big say in terms of what's going to happen because the players are going to listen to what Tiger says, not what Jay Monahan says. So a lot of people dislike live. And, you know, they say that they're playing, you know, exhibition golf. Well, you can call it exhibition golf, but when you shoot a 58, you're pretty good at golf. And that's what Bryson DeChambeau did. Oh, amazing. He With a 23 under, a 58 on Sunday at the Greenbrier course, which used to be a PGA Tour event. So it's another, so people say it's a course, but it was actually a real course. Um, I, the, the, 
great job by Bryce and tremendous for the 58. He said it was the best round of his life, even though he won the U.S. Open, which I consider that better than that. But I got to give also credit to Matthew Wolf. You know, Brooks Kepka. <laughs> we think Carly Lloyd had tough comments to the U.S. soccer team. Brooks Kepka had a lot of comments to Matthew Wolf. It woke him up. He's on the team, on the Brooks team. He, he, he shot 16 under and was finished third. So the motivation, Brooks is motivated. You know, Brooks, Brooks his, the captain, was finished 38. Matthew Wolf finished third. So I think his motivation worked on that. I give him credit with that to some extent. But no, good win for Bryce and Bryson at the, at the Greenbrier. Our boy Brooks Kepka, the legendary motivator. Um, let's talk a little boxing. Did you happen to catch uh, Paul and Diaz? Because I did. Tell me. I didn't know it. I, I didn't watch it because I said I want to go to bed early. That was the choice to go early to get up. So tell me about that. I have two takeaways from this fight. One is that, man, Nate Diaz could take a punch. He didn't look like he would cared to be there at all. He was just getting his face pounded in and never wavered. Just kept walking into punches. So it was entertaining from that aspect. The other thing, because I haven't watched many of these, this is very clearly a Jake Paul production. In a sense that the announcers are talking him up the entire time. This is not like a fair, a level playing field. It's a production put on by him as a, as a promoter of himself like he is. The entire fight, they're just talking about how great Jake Paul is and how he's awesome and blah, blah, blah. It's very clear he's the one signing their checks. It, it, it was interesting for what it was, just to see how Nate Diaz continually got pounded in the face and kept walking into punches. Other than that, I, I still don't know if Jake Paul's a good boxer. Well, I think the one thing, Jake Paul, and I think this is something, there's a big fight coming up on October 28th in Saudi Arabia. Tyson Fury, heavyweight champion of the world, against Francis Nagano, who was the UFC heavyweight champion of the world, who quit because he couldn't come to his money. Now he's going to get paid hundreds of millions of dollars to go fight Tyson Fury. I question whether we look at the UFC fighters and think they're going to be good boxers. I don't. It hasn't. Besides Conor McGregor against McGregor and against Mayweather, and if you look at what Mayweather's happened since then, he probably was a, was a shot fighter at that moment. It's not like they've done that well against against not really good boxers. So I do think there's an aspect that we look at someone as a UFC fighter as this great fighter that they're going to easily step in the boxing ring. It hasn't translated that much, and I think that's what you're running with Nate Diaz and Jake Paul. So Jake Paul has figured that out. It's like these guys are names; they're known as fighters, but they're not really good boxers. Because I really think if Jake Paul went against a good boxer, it'll be over. But he's making he doesn't need to because he's making a fortune doing fighting all the the MMA the UFC stars and, and they're happy with making money he's happy with making money and and that's fine. We've got Brad Baluchin of the Wax Pack ready to go in just a second. But quick, what happened in racing? Uh, Chris Bushler now is going back to back weeks in NASCAR, uh, so he's doing fantastic. And it's the uh, Formula One. This is like this is back from the tradition like 100 years ago, like many years ago. They don't race in August. They the whole, the whole month off for rest and relaxation. And if you have follow any of the Instagram accounts of any of these Formula One drivers, trust me, they are having a very good time because they are at the most exclusive resort. And if you're a Formula One driver, you get to vacation wherever you want in the world. So that's what's so fun. But that there's no Formula One for the next three weeks. Let's go to Brad Belusian. It is the Iron Sports. This is Ira from Iron Sports, and we're talking to Brad Belucian, uh, author of the Wax Pack. Uh, Brad, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Well, thanks for having me, Ira. So today, I think yesterday we found out the LeBron James. Uh, basketball card just sold for $1.8 million. So instead of writing this book about baseball cards and tracking down all these players, you should have been tracking that LeBron James uh, basketball card down. Yeah, well, the cards that I tracked down are worth about three cents. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brad, you, you came up with this idea for a book. And you went up to a pack of, of 1986 Topps baseball cards. And, and like you, I collected cards. I loved baseball cards. And I used to have to go you know, try to get my whole set. And there was a guy named Carl Sassano. And his dad owned a candy store. Not a candy, actually a candy distributor. And he could get the entire set all the time. And it took me like the whole season to get an entire set. And he'd have it on the first day. So I was always jealous. But you, like me, you buy like one pack at a time. But your idea was to take one pack and then back in 86 and then follow, trying out where these players are and talk to them. Yep, that was it. That was a very simple concept, kind of where are they now, these guys from 30 years ago who, who I collected when I was a little kid. Yeah, and uh, it was interesting. So you had, there were 14 cards in the deck. You could not interview four of them, and one person died. And so, But it's still, I loved your stories about trying to find the people that you had tried to interview. But And you had to, and you just drove. I mean, your book is more than just talking about interviewing these people, but it's actually your whole course of trying to find these players and the background you gave into them. And not being a sports writer yourself, uh, I thought gave you a different perspective than, than just a sports book. 
Yeah, I know. I, I always had a very um, sort of ambitious vision for the book. I mean, you could write a lot of different types of books using the conceit of a single pack of cards. And for me, it was, you know, it started out with this very simple question of, you know, what happens to these players when they're in their mid-30s and they can never do the one thing they've spent their whole lives thinking about, you know, what do you do with the rest of your life and, and where are they now? Um, but it, it became a lot more. It was, um, you know, as I met, went around the country, I drove 11,341 <laughs> miles over seven weeks to find all these guys. And I made it clear when I would meet them that, I was much more interested in kind of who they are as people and their relationships, uh, people in their lives, than I was in, you know, reliving their home runs or their baseball heroics. And I think that that focus coupled with, as you said, the fact that I'm not uh, a traditional sports writer gave or provided material that that was that's new and refreshing and different and makes this book really not a baseball book but um you know i describe it as it's every bit as much a travel book and a self-help book as it is a baseball book because there's a lot of advice in there about you know how to live your life how to manage anxiety and fear and uh, i think you know people can get a lot out of that and I loved how you, when you went and talked to the players and their families and, and their friends, so you sort of got that sense. And a lot of these players, people will know, and someone like uh, Gary Templeton is, is someone you've spent some time talking to, is Steve Yeager from the, the Dodgers. But it was also that these players, it, it, it wasn't like they knew from, I mean, a few of the players they knew from the moment they, you know, they were going to be the star baseball player. But it was out of nowhere. And when Lee Mazzilli found out that he was drafted by the, you know, he, how excited he was and how he ran by the Mets and he got pumped and excited. But it was all those things about when they were younger growing up and, and what molded them to actually become this major league player that they would someday have a baseball card. Yeah, you know, people ask me a lot, like, if you did this book 30 years from now based on today's players, how would it be different? And I think it would be a lot different. Because I think today's athletes, even the guys that are, you know, the more marginal players, still make incredible money and have just a lot more of a support system and just a lot more protected in a lot of ways. And, you know, this generation of ballplayers who, who came, came up in the seventies and eighties, I think is that least that last generation of sort of pre-internet, um, you know, pre-smartphone culture and life. And, and, and a lot of these guys, you know, came for, came up, playing three different sports and they weren't necessarily just focused on baseball. And so there's a sort of, um, you know, innocence and kind of a naivete of that generation that I think is gone that is captured in telling their stories of how they how they got to become major leaguers. Yeah, and, then, and you talk about in terms of how they're different, in terms of, like, you were excited to see Steve Yeager from the Dodgers. You knew he was a, this partier, and, the, and you were ready to have excitement, and he's like, I'm 66 years old. I really don't do anything anymore. And Rich Havner, the same yeah, not, thing. Not, right, not only that, but, uh, you know, here I just reading about him when he was playing, he's sort of this playboy type, and so I'm thinking, oh, we're going to go out and go to a bar in Hollywood or something, and he's like, I haven't had a, dro- I haven't had a drop of alcohol in 27 years, so... Some of these things, like, I didn't know that. I didn't know when I met up with Randy Reddy that he was in the middle of a divorce. I mean, there were some of these things that that I had no way of knowing ahead of time that these guys confided in me that just talk, you know, spoke a lot about the adjustments that they've made in their lives uh, since their baseball careers are, are over. And you did. You spent some... He spent interesting times with them. Like some people, you had it just a lunch with them and a meeting like that. Some you met in a dugout, but also like with Don Carmen, you were went to the zoo. I thought the stories about the giraffes was hilarious. And then you spent July Fourth with one of the players, and then you were with Randy Reddy. You're bowling and you're lifting weights with them. So I thought that was really good how you were able to get those, those people. They, some of these players really bonded with you and just told you everything. Yeah, I was really, you know, impressed and flattered by the sort of intimacy that they were willing to grant me, considering, again, I'm just a, a stranger. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to spend long periods with anybody. But even in the shorter periods, you know, like getting to do those things you mentioned, you know, Don Carmen, who was my favorite player as a kid, getting to go to the zoo and then going to his house and, and seeing his, his office and um, playing catch with him and, uh, you know, Randy Reddy, as you said, going bowling and going to the gym. I mean, not only is that just more fun, but it's also, I think for the reader, a more, it makes for a more compelling experience because 
you get to see all these different environments. And as a writer, I'm describing, you know, the setting that we're in. And it, that's a lot more entertaining and interesting than if I just, every guy was like, um, I'm sitting having a cup of coffee. You know, that would just would get kind of repetitive after a while. <laughs> and then going to the hometowns like Lowell, Arkansas and Norwood, Massachusetts, and then talking. I loved how you just went up to people and you're with your dad, too. He goes, do you know who Lee Mazzilli is? Or, like you went up to people and just started, and you know, tell me about this. What do you know about this person? And I thought it was interesting how these people came from these small towns and just made an impression like, oh, everybody knows who they are. I mean, Britt Sutcliffe said, that I've signed an autograph for every single person in the town. They don't need to ask for me any autographs. Yeah, and that's where I think, again, back to this book being more than just baseball. The, the tra- I mean, I had my first job out of college was working for a travel magazine called Islands. And I, I realize now, looking back, that you know that experience almost 20 years ago really helped me in this book because, to me, uh, it, you can learn a lot about a person by going to the place where they where they come from and and writing about that environment and that place and you know to me it was it, writing trying to capture the essence of, a, of one of these players in a fairly short amount of space I wanted to do everything I could including you know not just talking to them but talking or visiting the physical environment in which they grew up and talking to people who were from that place yeah, then it was, we're talking to Brad Belugian, author of The Wax Pack. It's a very hot book out there in terms of baseball. People love it. It's, a, it's an easy read. Totally recommend if someone, if you're not even a baseball fan, you're going to love this book. It's a tremendous book. But you were interviewing, um, you, I think one of the concepts of the book was the players, you had, were asking the questions like, when did you know it was time to give it up? When did you know it was time to retire? A lot of times it wasn't a choice, but you talked about how Carlton Fist, they kept telling him they want to retire and he didn't want to. But it was like that whole, they loved the game so much, they just didn't want to give it up and they didn't want to retire. Yeah, to a man, uh, I think everybody, well, maybe the exception is Jaime Kokenauer, but he's sort of an interesting anomaly. You know, you always look at the outliers to to tell an interesting story, and pretty much all these guys struggled with life immediately after retiring and, you know, had a really hard time, as Randy Reddy said, you know, getting getting the player out of their system. Um, Kokenauer, who was the least successful baseball player, um, you know, he had the easiest transition probably because he was the least successful baseball player. But, you know, in a way, he kind of gets the last laugh because he's probably the most content and well-adjusted after baseball. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things you one of the things you think about when you read this book is, you know, would I rather be Carlton Fisk and be this Hall of Fame player but maybe have this very kind of bittersweet epilogue? Or would I rather be Jaime Kokenauer who – no one really knows, but has had this really fulfilling life um, after baseball. So it's not as simple. I think we all, you know, we all tend to think, oh, you know, we, we kind of worship the big stars and we think they have the greatest lives. But I think this book challenges that that idea. And then it's interesting about how so many of these players – stay in coaching. Like you talk about Rich Hebner, who played 16 years in baseball and then now has been coaching for, what, another 30 years, it seems like, and how they just, and they're coaching in the minor leagues and riding these buses. And it's just, when I look at some of these players, like I see, like, uh, when I saw some of these NBA players, I just can't believe, like, you earned, I know they earned, like, $150, $200 million, and they're, like, an assistant coach, and they're riding the bench, like, but for this, it's even different. I mean, these people have money, they have some sort of, but they're still in coaching. You know, they did that. Do you think their grind is over, but they're back there coaching baseball year after year? Yeah, because it's not about ultimately it's not about money. You know, I think what what draws these guys in is the camaraderie of the game. You know, that that kind of rises as the single most memorable thing about their careers is the camaraderie with the other players. I mean, Rance Mullenix said, if you could give me a choice between going back in time and going four for four, or just getting a chance to sit on the bench and hang out with you know, Willie Upshaw and Jesse Barfield and those guys, he would take the ladder, you know, every time. And so I think the guys hang on because of that camaraderie and in some cases because of their egos. You know, I think ego is also a, a big, a big part of all this. One aspect of your book was we talk about baseball and the relationship between fathers and sons. And it wasn't, you know, the, 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 concept, the perception is that it's this, all oh, the fathers out there throwing balls with the son develops him to be a great baseball player. But you found in this book from your people you're interviewing, it wasn't like that at all. Yeah, it's a good point. It's uh, it sort of, 
you know, turns the, the Steal the Dreams climax on its head a little bit because a lot of these players in the pack, it wasn't that their dads were playing catch with them. It's that their dads were, you know, just really either abandoning them or abusing them or, I mean, really dark things. And I think that that, um, you know, that's a bit of, of reality uh, of what some of these guys had to deal with. But also it's nice to see that they did not repeat the same mistakes with their kids. So, you know, getting to see Steve Yeager talk or getting to meet Steve Yeager's son and, and talk to both of them at the same time and seeing how close they are and getting to hear Don Carmen talk about how much he, he just absolutely adores and and loves his son and how special he is, um, you know, all, all three of his sons. You know, it's it, it was a nice, nice, nice uh, closure to see that. So anyway, we're talking to Brad Bellucci, an author of The Wax Pack. It's available in all stores. Brad, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you. And yeah, people can go to waxpackbook.com and, and learn more and check it out. And uh, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ira, what are you up to this week? Well, you know, the first of all, I thought Brad was great. I love the book and I totally encourage people. It's so different. And I just thought that was such a cool interview that we just had with him. And I also, but this week, I'm just going to, hopefully, I'm going to go to a, uh, uh, what a camp. I want to go to a training camp. You have the Jets, the Giants, Steelers. I'd like to go to a training camp because I love that experience to go watch the players play. And I, so hopefully I'll go to someone's training camp. We've got to figure out how to work with the schedule with the weather. And you know, the problem is when you go to these, they, they cancel them just because you know, they don't want them outside. If, if you have a little storm, they're going to cancel the whole camp that day. So you have to be concerned about that. We are out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.